It's July 19th, 1900. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. The inauguration of the Paris Metro, which took place on this day in 1900, was a relatively subdued affair for two reasons. First, it had been an immensely controversial project, with politicians feeling that it was safer to keep everything just a bit low-key. And second, because rumours had been circulating about the risks of accidents, specifically landslides and derailments, which made the idea of joining a test group in a tunnel in the dark beneath the earth rather less than totally tempting. And once again, in retrospect as history, we have a world's fair. I'm just starting to learn the grand theory that everything that ever happened happened because of or at a world's fair. <laughs> and the Paris Metro opened during the 1900 Exposition Universelle. And also making their public debut at the world's fair were the Escalator, the Travelator, talking films, electric cars and matryoshka dolls, you know, the Russian nesting dolls. You'd think Paris would be almost embarrassed to uh, open their subway so late. You know, this was 37 years after the London Underground. It was after Budapest. It was after Vienna. But the fact that they went last meant that ultimately they were able to create an electrically driven network right from the beginning. Whereas in London, we had to convert ours from steam to electricity at this point in time. There were at least two leading proposals of aerial rail systems, one of which <laughs> was going to look sort of like a, a monorail that had the cars of the trains hanging beneath on metal chains. And that was like, one. Like which, the vampire at Chessington World of Adventures. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another one that was just a more straightforward train, but elevated in the, in the sky. And ultimately, the reason that those didn't go ahead was that it just would have been too expensive to buy up the required land to have an above ground systems. But even then what delayed it was that the city of Paris had long-standing poor relationship with the national government and they really didn't want the state-owned rail firms to have anything to do with the project. And obviously the state rail system already had several terminals in Paris and then you had all of the stations around it. So their proposal was, hey, why don't we just build it? But Mm. Paris was like, no, we want this to be our thing to the extent that they said... In fact, we're actually going to build it on an alternative gauge. We're not going to use a normal track gauge. We're going to use a different one to make sure that no national trains can ever run on it. (laughs) Then the government intervened and were like, please, please don't do that. Please just build it using normal rails, which they did. But then they secretly just made the tunnels too narrow for any normal trains to actually run on. (laughs) I love the idea that there would have been a hostile takeover of, you know, the national trains just (laughs) steaming down. The national trains just start stopping (laughs) further and further along the track. (laughs) I mean, it's astonishing, really, given how long it had been that the London underground network had been going, that there were still opponents mounting the kinds of objections that they were. Some wags had come up with this great slogan where they said that the Metropolitan would become a Necropolitan. And they were... They were the death line. Yeah, the death line. And they were, they were saying, in particular, that being that close to sewers would put you in contact with disease and that damp air would promote illness and so on. And so much so that on the day of the opening, they were actually pumping this lovely floral fragrance into the air, being sprayed to both make it a sort of memorable occasion that people looked back on fondly, but also to alleviate those fears of bad air dwelling in the metro. I mean, they really should bring that back. If you've been on the metro, <laughs> you, you'll know that they're due to bring back those oh, uh, the floral yeah. spritz would be very welcome. I'm going <laughs> to pretend that's camembert I can smell, I say to myself. <laughs> but I mean, you can understand why, even though they had the precedent of London being a success, they would be nervous. I mean, things like digging up around dead bodies, the concerns that stagnant water could cause health problems. 
the idea that electricity passing at such high voltage under your feet was untested mm. in a city like Paris. You can sort of understand. I mean, Necropolitan is overstating it, but you can understand why even reasonable, rational people would be like, this is a huge engineering project and it's going to come with many dangers. And also, I think specifically for Paris, if you think about French literature, there was this idea of the underground space as being not like it's seen in some other countries as like a refuge from the heat, mm. but already in France seen as a place of disease and filth. You, know, you think about Les Miserables, think about Phantom of the Opera. So, I mean, maybe they were just like, I like the trams. Can we not mm. just like make the trams better? <laughs> I quite like the plan that Jules Garnier put in for an aerial transportation system that was more like a monorail than the one you were describing, Arian, in that the carriages weren't hanging underneath, they were on top. So something similar to what you see in Chicago, where parts of the subway mm. come up above street level, but the whole way around Paris never going underground. And the idea would be that the track would have a pedestrian walkway underneath to give you like shelter from the rain which all sounds kind of reasonable until you start thinking yeah but what about the train going in the other direction mm. so the plan then was to have the track going in the reverse direction directly above so you'd have like a 15 foot tall roof which was the pedestrian walkway and then above that you'd have the train going north and then 15 foot above that you'd have another track with the train going south it would have been just the noisiest place to be especially considering <laughs> how close together all of the metro stations have ended up being and so precisely because of all these deliberations about exactly what was possible and practical work didn't actually start until october 1898 which meant that it only took 20 months to complete line one and that was the goal was for line one to be ready in time for the world's wow. fair which is astonishing that really puts cross rail in context doesn't yeah. it like it's taken them 20 years and they haven't had to build it with pickaxes and shovels well they were very motivated to get it done the line two would take three years so obviously you know they were really pushing through the first one. And the civil engineer in charge, the Brunel of the project, was Fulgence Bienvenue. And like Brunel, he had come hair-raisingly close to death on the job. He lost his left arm in a construction accident as a young man. And because he had this time pressure behind him rather than using the shield method of tunneling we talked about it a bit in the Thames Tunnel but it's basically where you drill a big hole down and then you sort of push across in a covered device that stops the tunnel from collapsing he used the much quicker cut and cover method basically you dig a really really deep ditch you pad out the tunnel and then you cover it again which is a lot cheaper and faster to do than the shield method but it also results in a much shallower result so London has a deep level tube system and Paris is, is much closer to the surface you might have noticed that you can get phone signal on the I mean, the first time I was on the metro and someone rang me, I was literally looking around thinking I was in some kind of thriller. I was like, oh my God, it's the government. I've been selected by MI5. That's the only way a phone call could reach me on the tube, but no. By the way, Bienvenu's accident wasn't just any engineering-related accident. He actually had his left arm amputated after falling on train tracks, which I thought that would be the end for me and anything to do with any sort of train work. <laughs> So he's a particularly brilliant guy and went on to supervise the construction of the Paris Metro for more than three decades, actually, only finally retiring in the 30s. Yeah, he came up with this great solution, actually, for the potential of flooding as well, which was this artificial reservoir underneath the Opera House so that there was an excess there. And indeed, the first accident on the metro was not flooding. It was the opposite. It was a fire. And it occurred not that long after opening, actually. It was in August 1903. It's often called the Couronne disaster after the station where most of the deaths took place. And basically what happened, it's quite technical, but the gist of it is that there was a short circuit on a train, started a fire, but everyone underestimated how bad the fire was. They evacuated the passengers and the driver was attempting to get the empty train to the end of the line, but then suddenly the fire just went completely out of control and the crew had to abandon the train flee for their lives. 
passengers who were on the service behind were evacuated at Curon onto the platforms, which then plunged into darkness as the fire cut off its electrical circuit. So the station was completely black, filling with smoke. They didn't have illuminated exit signs. That was one of the things that was introduced in the aftermath of this tragedy. And 84 people died. And that story really, for me, highlighted the extent to which that initial reluctance had dissipated by this time. You know, even in the first year, with people saying, I don't ever want to go on this. And the fact that in 1903, you have this massive and terrifying fire with those sorts of details that you were sort of sketching out there. And people still went, actually, no, let's plunge on with extending the metro in the ways that we've already planned, speaks to the fact that people had got used to this idea that you could get from one side of Paris to the other in a comparatively short time, and that the system worked the way they imagined it, if not better. I mean, it was never going to keep up the uh, momentum of the excitement that Parisians had on this day, going from one end of Paris to another in 30 minutes, you know, 16 million metro tickets were sold in six months. I mean, it's still a big deal on Instagram, isn't it? The beautiful sort of Art Nouveau entrances to the stations, they're still widely lauded. But generally, it's become seen as, I guess, just a fact of life, like an unremarkable fact of life for Parisians. There's the phrase Metro Boileau Dodo, which means you live to work. Uh, I go on the metro I go home and I go to sleep. And those original Art Nouveau entrances were designed by Hector Guimard. He designed them out of cast iron and glass, and it was partly intended to alleviate Parisian fears that these new stations would bring ugly industrial architecture Mm. onto the streets of Paris. So instead of, you know, steel and concrete, you had these curved cast iron shapes, you had glass, and you had that kind of floaty calligraphy you see on the signs. But not everyone was a fan. At the time, André Allais, writing in Le Ton, said that it was confusing to little children who were trying to learn their letters and stupefying to foreigners. (laughs) That's like my headmistress who wouldn't let us watch Neighbours because it breaks the uh, I before E rule. (laughs) Tomorrow plunging eight foot directly onto his broken knee, which instantly dislocated it and tore Yeah, you could hear it squish. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.